Hey, what's up, everybody, and welcome back to That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and this episode is Q&A number 95. For today's Q&A, I'm joined by fellow scientific triathlon coach Lachlan Kieran to have a discussion around transitioning from 70.3 to Ironman training and racing. But before we get into these questions, big thanks to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Precision Hydration have developed an online sweat test, which is a quiz consisting of 10 questions. And the idea behind this quiz is that you can easily, in a few minutes, get a good estimate for how much sodium you lose in your sweat, and that will help you match your sodium intake and your electrolyte supplementation to your individual sweat sodium content and your sodium losses, which will be increasingly important the longer and the hotter the races and uh, training for that matter. So in terms of Ironman training that we're discussing today, it can obviously be a, a massively important part of the puzzle. Uh, this online sweat test has been validated against uh, actual sweat testing with medical-grade equipment, uh, so that's a really cool feature of the online sweat test as well. You can get 15% off your order of precision hydration electrolytes with the promo code DATTRIATHLONSHOW15 on precisionhydration.com. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And uh, they have uh, tons of really cool innovations and patent patented technologies in those various product lines, like, for example, the Arms Up technology in the wetsuits and trisuits, meaning that uh, you have uh, maximal uh, shoulder flexibility, uh, minimal restriction of your shoulders, and they have this even in the entry-level wetsuits. So that's uh, a really, really cool feature, and they have many others, so go check them out on roca.com. And you can get 20% off your order with a promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. Now let's get into the questions for today with coach Lachlan Kieran. So I'm back here with uh, coach uh, Lachlan Kieran for another Q&A. And the question that we're answering today is uh, from uh, Matthias in Switzerland who writes, uh, what are the main changes in training when I change from 7.3 distance racing to long distance racing? Is it volume, intensity, nutrition, indoor training, equipment, recovery? Also, what do you think is the lowest number of training hours per week you have to train to finish an Ironman? And what amount of training hours per week do you think is necessary to qualify for Kona? Finally, what finisher time would you suggest is needed to qualify for Kona in the following years? Thanks a lot and all the best. So, uh, Lucky, let's uh, start with uh, the first sub-questions. What are the things that change in training when moving from the 71.3 distance to long distance? What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I um, thinking about this, consider it you know, from an age group perspective um, as we transition from 70.3 to, say, full distance. Um, you know, for, for a lot of age groupers who are working, say, Monday to Friday, for instance, um, there's probably limited opportunity in the week to, to add volume. Um, I think the main change in terms of volume is probably going to come in those key weekend sessions, um, you know, pushing out the longer ride to, you know, race distance, uh, I would prefer at least a couple of times. And when I say distance, um, probably at least duration is, is the way that I look at that. 
um, you know, where an athlete lives and their terrain will, will factor in in terms of how many Ks they actually cover. And, and similarly for the long run, you know, I think that's probably going to be where we see the two increases in volume across the week um, as compared to, say, a 70.3 athlete. Um, during the week, yeah, as I said, you know, we're, we're working with limited hours, so we can't just be stacking volume because, you know, stress is stress and, and, you know, we've got the stress of life and I don't think I expect athletes to be trying to get up at, you know, ungodly hours just to try and cram in hours of training. Yeah, that's also the, the main point that I have here in my notes is that the, the importance of, uh, individual long sessions so for most age groupers the those weekend sessions increases um, a lot when when you go from the half distance to the full distance so getting in your long ride and your long run and, and even to some extent uh, a long swim on a regular basis i, I think would be uh, the most important what, what do you think about uh, the the overall training volume should it change like or and does that change come from just a weekend increase perhaps of those long long rides and runs or can you actually get away with a total volume that is sort of more or less the same as you used to do or what's what do you think around that yeah i mean you know you have to consider the implications of increasing those those weekend sessions don't you so that might mean that say on a monday we have to we have to tone back um a little bit and with a lot of athletes something that i see to be quite successful is keeping monday as a as a day off the legs so to speak with just a swim especially through an ironman build um and that can be hard for some athletes for sure but as you said that that does sometimes provide that opportunity for a longer swim as well um not necessarily a super highly stressful swim in terms of intensity but we we might use some pool boy and, and some pool boy paddles and just get volume in on that day so you know when we break it down if if we're taking a little bit off monday um, for instance, but you know we're increasing the volume over the weekend in terms of net total volume. I think likely to still see an increase, um, and that would be expected. But it's probably not going to be um, hugely significant. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with that. Uh, in terms of the one additional point that I have around the the long sessions is that sometimes depending on whether if the athlete has good sort of availability to do let's say a two two and a half hour ride on a weekday i might actually do more do fewer sessions for an ironman athlete in total but uh, maybe and that helps us get in a sort of a medium long ride in midweek rather than let's say on a wednesday morning they have typically done a one and a half hour ride for their half distance build and can we get that to two two and a half hours and then in addition have that really long ride on the weekend that that does seem to uh, bring a little bit of extra resilience just having that 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 longer ride in on one more spot in the week but that's obviously dependent on whether the athlete has the availability to do that with work and how early they might need to get up for that and, and so on as you said but but i do think that even without increasing total volume if we can uh, have some more sessions that are slightly longer than they used to be that 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 seems to be be a good strategy yeah and i think the important consideration there as well is um <clears throat> as we're kind of measuring load um you know if we were talking about it from something like a, a tss perspective and and this is where you know i see one of the failings for sure is that um if an athlete didn't have the ability to say you know add that extra 
bit of volume in on something like a Wednesday, for instance, um, you know, what I've seen with athletes is that they'll just try and cram intensity through that midweek phase, um, you know, simply as a means of, of building something like a TSS number and, and trying to build their CTL and stuff like that. And, um, you know, that's not necessarily the route that we actually want to go down. No, no, definitely not. And then the other variables that Matthias mentions in the question uh, include nutrition, intensity, recovery, indoor training and equipment. So if we tackle each one of those, uh, I mean, I can start a bit with like if you increase your overall training volume, then uh, that probably leads to a slight increase in overall day-to-day nutrition as well. And also those longer rides and runs, they do put an additional emphasis on your workout nutrition plus the fact that the Ironman the the nutrition really becomes an important aspect uh, even exponentially compared to the half distance I feel so actually being really dialed in with your race nutrition becomes a more important part of the of the training process so so there are some changes there I feel obviously if overall training volume does not increase or only increases minimally then the changes in day-to-day nutrition will be very minimal as well and uh, it's the same thing i think with with recovery if you increase your training volume it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to uh, increase your recovery for most that's not really realistic you we have the typical sleep patterns that we have in many cases and hopefully they are good enough and we just have to make sure that with that amount of recovery in particular the sleep and nutrition parts that that, that amount of recovery actually allows us to uh, to handle the training the increased training volume but uh, of course generally we would assume that you're not doing any massive jumps in training volume so it's more like a a little nudge in the uh, upward trajectory when you when you move towards the the full distance rather than rather than a massive massive jump so it should sort of almost sort itself out what, what do you think about these aspects yeah i mean i agree i think that nutrition and recovery are certainly intertwined you know they're not um they're not mutually exclusive things, right? Like nutrition is, is a part of recovery. And um, I think, as, as you kind of mentioned, if volume is increasing, then it's really important that we're fueling the work, so to speak. So, you know, even just you know, in its pure, purest form, I think, you know, maintaining a good energy balance should be probably the number one priority. And, um, you know, I think in terms, of, in terms of age group athletes, especially, you know, those who are, you know, working and, and have a routine, it's it's very easy to actually fall into kind of a bit of a deficit. Um, you know, you, you kind of have your routine through the week and, and this is what you have for lunch and, and breakfast. And if if you're not really, you know, following the fact that you're adding more load and, and therefore need more energy on board, um, it's, it's easy over time to kind of create a bit of a deficit. So something that I'm always hounding into my athletes is that, you know, we're really – making sure we're on top of that. Um, similarly, like, you know, having carbohydrate availability for the sessions where it's really, you know, needed, I think is important as well. Um, and from a nutrition standpoint, in terms of race day, um, you know, w- we need to find what works not for one or two hours, but, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 plus hours um, is how long you're going to be taking on that nutrition. So um, it's really important to practice that through training. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, And that's that's why I think that, yeah, practicing that through training is so much more important than a half distance because, because you can sort of 
get away with not having a dialed in nutrition plan for four or five or six hours in a half distance and uh, i've certainly done that not having a very dialed in nutrition plan and and done just fine in half distance races but when you're going to be out there for uh, twice the duration or more then you really need to know what what works yeah there's a massive difference between exploding at uh, 15 k's of the run into a half Ironman versus you know exploding 15 k's into a marathon um it's a it's a much longer journey (laughs) yeah in terms of intensity what what are your thoughts around whether or not that changes and how if it does yeah i mean i think especially as we get into the specific phase for a race that you know we do need to dial into you know race specific intensities um and it's important that you you find out what that is for you you know if you're going to be for instance let's say on the bike for five hours that's it's a much different intensity than if you're going to be on the bike for seven and a half hours um so you know dialing that in i think is important um you know i think it's also really important as well to um keep some let's call it race pace intensity which you know for an ironman shouldn't necessarily feel that hard um within the longer sessions so um you know i actually like to consider as we move towards the race something like the long run as a key run session um instead of you know i think sometimes what we see is say two harder run sessions in the week and then the long run just becomes almost you know an easy collect volume and and sure that has its place in the year but i think as we approach an ironman you know that those longer sessions and having some some key race pace work in them is really important it's funny you should mention that because actually the q a of last week which you haven't heard yet because we're recording before it's released but in that q a i talk exactly about that and, and some other aspects around the, the long run uh, but yes, I, I agree. The race-specific period, that's where obviously, and not just the race-specific period, but anytime you have race intensity, obviously the intensity is different. But I also want to emphasize that I think that generally speaking, a lot of the intensity remains the same. You will still have your moderate intensity workouts and your high intensity workouts, kind of similar to what you would have when you're doing your half distance and uh, the the difference really comes in when we're talking about those race specific workouts so so i don't think that it changes substantially it's just that on the 17.3 training program especially if you're a quite reasonably fast athlete then the race specific workouts they can be considered i mean that's moderate intensity and it's uh, it can be a pretty pretty high power output on the bike or pretty high high pace on the run and the swim and so on so that becomes really like a quality workout. But on the Ironman, especially for somebody who's going to take a longer time to complete that, uh, it's almost, yeah, it's part of, of your endurance training in, at the same time as it, as it is race-specific intensity. So, so in that last period where you do a lot of race, race-specific training, then the, the other quality workouts, you might lose one if you're training for a half distance because your race-specific training uh, is already fairly hard but for the on the ironman program maybe you still have one moderate and one high intensity workout in the week in in the other disciplines so so that's a bit of a difference but but generally speaking for a large part of the training i don't see intensity changing uh, changing that much to be honest yeah i think it's really important as well through those longer sessions um as it pertains to ironman that um, you're not overshooting that 
intensity because you know as as you probably agree as well the the difference let's say on the bike between you know ironman pace and and 70.3 pace in terms of how that's being fueled um is very different right so um you know it's very if you're going to start pushing in uh that pace up to 70.3 effort um consistently it's it's not going to be long before you might find yourself in a bit of a hole and that comes back to that whole you know uh energy availability and, and those kind of things yeah absolutely and uh what are your thoughts around indoor training and equipment any changes there um you know i think for ironman it i, I mean for most in a 70.3 as well but really important to be carrying spares um I think, you know, for top-end age groupers and, and in the pro race in a half, sometimes you'll see athletes not taking spares and kind of just chancing it, but, you know, I'd never recommend it. I think when it comes to an Ironman, <clears throat> really important that, A, you're carrying equipment to, to fix problems, but, B, you know how to do it. Um, you know, it's all well and good to be carrying tubes and valve extenders and, you know, pit stop and all of that, but if you actually don't know how to use it then it's a bit of a waste of time so it's something that might take you you know an hour of your time to just really tune in how, how to change the tube but it's something that i think um, is critically important and you know similar to that just know know your equipment like know if you're running tubeless tires or if you're running a tube or you're running tubulars and know how to fix those problems um, it's easy and it doesn't really take any physical effort. So that's that's probably my number one thing there. Um, other equipment choices, I think important that you've got bottle cages that, you know, aren't just going to drop everything in them as soon as you hit a bump. How many times in an Ironman have I seen, you know, there'd be some speed humps straight out of transition and people lose their bottles and decide that it's not worth the five seconds to turn around and get it. and uh, then complain at the end of the race that they blew up because they had no nutrition. So, you know, it's important to be level-headed, but also make smart equipment choices on that front. Yeah, those are really good, uh, good suggestions. And uh, a couple of other ones that I would uh, suggest is, I mean, I think these days it's not necessarily a problem with most devices, but actually make sure that your devices have battery lives that can last the duration of the race. For example, I know that my bike computer uh, would not last the duration of, I mean, it even, it barely lasts uh, half, half Ironman on, on the bike. It's sort of, I don't know, the battery is really drained and doesn't charge fully or whatever. So uh, the next time I go and race, I will definitely have a new bike computer where it's a half or full distance, but that's something to, uh, to think about. And also uh, I think on the shoe side of things, maybe these days, it's less of a difference because, to be honest, I see most uh, pros and uh, age groupers that are looking for, at least for their uh, best possible time, wearing some sort of Nike shoes. Uh, but uh, maybe three years ago when we didn't have these carbon uh, plate shoes, then the half distance was a race where you could uh, consider probably racing in some sort of racing flats, really light shoes, and and that would work fine. But for, for the Ironman on the marathon, you would probably want something something more cushioned uh, so that that might be a consideration i'll interject here and say socks um find a good pair of socks for ironman because you're still running a marathon yeah and and indoor training uh, i can go first here and uh, 
personally, I am uh, a bit crazy, although I must say I have friends that are way worse than I am with indoor training. But to be honest, I'm more than happy doing a four-hour session on the indoor trainer. I just find it so uh, effective and uh, I can have my own entertainment and, and so on. Uh, however, when I do get a five-hour ride on the schedule, that's uh, that sort of reaches a limit where I will head out head outdoors every single time. Oh, obviously, I'm not doing all my four-hour session indoor sessions indoor, but it's definitely something that is absolutely possible for me. So, when for Ironman training with more of those longer rides, then then I think that outdoor riding just becomes more a part of it. But that's probably just personal preference. It's not something that has to change. And obviously, everybody has their own individual threshold for what. Uh, what workouts make sense or are worth it to do outdoors versus indoors so so that's that, that's really not not something that changes based on distance i guess more so perhaps depending on what uh, event and the type of course you're training for like if you're training for a hilly uh, hilly ride then do you need to practice specific aspects around uh, climbing and descending and so on then obviously you would choose to go outdoors and ride much more versus if you're training for a flat ride with with no no corners then perhaps you you can do a lot of indoor training and it will be totally fine yeah i mean it's funny that you say that you're kind of happy to do four hours on the trainer um i was probably there a few years ago but perhaps i've just been been in the game a little bit longer and uh, i've kind of phased out of that um you know i've certainly done some long ergos as well but i tend to agree you know with you in terms of it's very course dependent, but, um, you know, for instance, if we had something like 30 minute efforts at Ironman pace, but out on the road, if, if you're on the TT bars and you might be pushing 35 to 40 kilometers an hour, it's not always practically very safe, um, depending on where you live. And that's a huge consideration, right? Like, you know, if you've got your head down and you know, you're looking up, but there's just cars everywhere. There's traffic lights. You know, these are all factors to consider. Um, I do agree that, that getting outside, especially if you have a hilly course, is important because it's it's really kind of important that you learn how to pace climbs. Um, you know, I know a lot of athletes, when they haven't necessarily done that, will get out and feel great on the first climb and be pushing up, you know, threshold in an Ironman, which probably isn't really what we want to do if there's you know a lot of climbing going on so learning how to use your gears learning how to find the right cadence in and out of saddle these are all skills and um you know they're worth developing um i also think to be honest there is a a psychological aspect of of getting outside sometimes i think it is good um but in saying that you know trainers have come such a long way that you know even on something like zwift we can we can get a very very good workout um in either erg mode or not erg mode um depending on what kind of session you've got going and, and what kind of course you're preparing for but look i think the the trainer is certainly an option it's just kind of comes down to how willing you are to sit there for that long yeah and uh the next sub question here was what do you think is the lowest number of training hours per week you have to do to finish an Ironman? Yeah, look, I, I thought about this question for a while. I think, you know, we've kind of discussed this before. There's a difference between finishing an Ironman and, and kind of finishing an Ironman and feeling, you know, fairly strong through it. So, um, you know, if you if you were going to finish an Ironman but do the marathon, 
in eight hours and you come from a swim background so you can do the swim in an hour and probably knock out the bike in five and a half or six and it's kind of a very different story to you know someone who maybe is pushing the cutoff on the swim bike and therefore you know is forced to you know include some running in the run um I think just based on the fact that I'd like to see most athletes get in, you know, some longer rides and longer runs on the weekend at least that, you know, we're looking at anywhere from kind of four to six, seven hours just across the weekend. So, um, you know, I would think that around 10 hours would be where I'd like to see most people, eight, you know, and, and sure there's people that can do less than that, but I think 10 is where I kind of fall on as a very approximate guide. Yeah. And uh, for me, the way I approached uh, this question is actually I was looking at, so how did I structure uh, my beginner Ironman training plan uh, that uh, that I have on, on scientifictriathlon.com and uh, looking at what the average duration per week was, and that's a 26-week plan. So uh, obviously it builds up from, from a lower volume and then gets higher closer to the race, but it averages nine hours per week over those 26 weeks so but that's still that's 234 hours of training in six months so so doing that you will like let's say you do another ironman then uh, in six months then you will get close to 500 hours per year which is not not at all shabby so although nine hours per week doesn't sound like a lot when you when it's spread out over such a long period it is it is actually quite a lot of training uh so yeah again i, I agree with you totally you can definitely finish an ironman on less than that but but finishing it and be be fairly confident that you can finish and not having to fight the cutoffs and so on. Uh, I think for that, I think that this this is a reasonable guideline. And also in terms of the maximum duration that, that I have in that plan, I, I have two weeks that are 14-hour weeks and many weeks in that 10 to 12-hour range in the last two or three months before the race. So So I looked at actually the average of the last 12 weeks before going into the two-week taper and the average for those 12 weeks is 10.6 hours per week so again right around what you also uh, had as your uh, as your guideline for for how much to train so uh, again we're not saying that this is the absolute minimum but it, it's the recommended <laughs> recommended amount to to finish it and feel reasonably good about it and i like that we're kind of talking here in terms of duration um you know and, and this something that I was considering around this question was specifically the long run. Um, I know we've talked about this offline quite a lot, but, um, you know, I, I get very uh, cautious with pushing athletes, you know, well beyond two hours in terms of running. Um, you know, there's a big difference between an athlete that has an aerobic threshold at six-minute Ks versus four-minute Ks, right? Like, so if we're just measuring purely in terms of, of distance, um you know, I think for, for some athletes at, at the slower end, um, it can become a little bit kind of dangerous for how much time we're putting in on the feet actually running. So I, I do like to follow more of a duration, um, you know, protocol when it comes to, to programming for athletes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the next question that we have here is uh, what amount of training hour per, hours per week is necessary to qualify for Kona? And what finishing times would you suggest is uh, needed the following years? 
Uh, perhaps uh, I I could start with what finishing times you would suggest is needed the following years, and then you can uh, start with the training hours you think is necessary. Uh, because I'm I'm sure you're aware of this as well, but uh, I would just recommend anybody who is interested in finishing times to qualify for Kona, go and check out coachcox.co.uk. I'll link to it in the episode description. Uh, uh, Russell Cox is a coach in the UK who actually is a past guest on the podcast, and he collects stats from all Ironman races and uh, who qualifies for Kona and so on. So there's data going back at least five years, if not more. So you can check for any race, any age group, what is needed, and you can basically make an informed decision as well on which races might make sense to go to. Obviously, bearing in mind that different times mean different things depending on the course and the weather conditions and so on. But just go, go to that website, go to the Kona qualification tab and scroll down to qualification by age groups, uh, age group, and then choose your own age group. And, and that will show you in different races what, what you would need. And I can give us an example uh, in my age group, 30 to 34. Uh, I can see that the slowest time last year that would have qualified for Kona was 1017 in Ironman Taiwan. But obviously that's very hot. So that's not comparable to 1017 in uh, another race. And, uh, but, and as a as a counterpoint to that, in Ironman Frankfurt, which well actually also was very very hot last year, but uh, in that race, uh, that age group would have required a nine seventeen in the same age group to qualify. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my most recommended resource to to check out when it comes to what what time is required. It's obviously so different for different age groups and genders and races that we can't really give a, a specific number. But everybody should can check out there what applies to themselves on that on that website yeah and i totally agree with your sentiment there like if you're really serious about qualifying for kona um you know it, it's so important to try at least do your best to pick a course that that suits you and, and sure that's not always practical you might just be doing whatever is most local but you know if you're a strong biker that going to Ironman Barcelona is probably not your best choice. You know, you're going to be much better suited to something like an Ironman New Zealand. And obviously, geographically, they're very different places. Um, so you probably wouldn't be choosing out of those two. But, you know, just as an example, um, I think it's really important to try and play to your strengths. And that comes from, you know, I think it's probably a fairly obvious statement. But just personally, as an athlete, I can tell you that Many times I've just gone to races without really considering that. And, you know, for instance, racing in Asia has never really worked out well for me, um, you know, simply due to the heat and humidity. So I think you, you need to play to your strengths and, and try and pick a race that, that suits you the best. Um, as, it, as it comes to hours, um, look, I think hours probably come second to the actual breakdown of the training. Um, you know, it's very dependent on, on an athlete. So, um, you know, if I'll give you an example. I have, you know, an athlete who comes from a fairly strong rolling background, um, likely has, a, you know, a very high VO2 max, um, can push amazing power on the bike and, and runs really well as well. But the way that he might be fueling that output um, could be very different to say someone who's been in you know endurance sport for the last 10 years um so you know the breakdown of the training there becomes really important 
Um, similarly, you, you hear all these stories of, you know, I qualified for Kona on 10 hours of training, but, you know, there's little talk about the 20, 30 years of endurance sport that, you know, came before that. So, you know, I think that's very important as well. Um, so, you know, coming full circle, and it's probably not the answer that a lot of people hear, it, it depends is really the answer. But I think as a guide, you know, in the 15 to 20 hour range, you know, at least in the, the specific prep for the race um, is probably a fairly good, good range to kind of, you know, plan for. Yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of variability, but uh, yeah, 50 to 20 hours would, would be a, a good ballpark estimate. But I think that obviously the, vari- the variance there would be, would be huge depending on talent and background and so on and actually if we were to look at how how many hours have you trained in the last five years then we would see a much smaller variance between the current qualifiers probably Uh, because it as you said the what what you've done in the last 30 years or 10 years or five years at least uh, that is so significant uh, for how much you need to train these next three months to if you want to qualify i mean uh, so, you, even, you even see that you know at the elite end as well you know the age of of you know men and women that are kind of winning kona um it's not like we're seeing 19 year olds going to win kona right exactly yeah actually a, a great interview that i just listened to yesterday was uh, on the be with champions podcast with uh, greg bennett he was interviewing john Ferdino and they were talking about about this about the age of the of the podium in in kona now this last time and and just saying that actually now that we've come so far that people have such great professionals around them in terms of physiotherapy and and coaching and uh, making sure that they don't screw up their bodies totally then actually that means that they can fully benefit from all of the base training they've put in over the last 30 years when they're 39 and or 38 or 39 and, and and that's why perhaps we might be seeing a, even a trend towards that age being being higher than it has been, let's say, 10 years ago for the Kona podium or whatever yeah. race you're talking about, really. And I think, you know, at an age group level, the way that comes back to it is having a long-term outlook on things, you know. Um, if you're new to the sport and you want to qualify for Kona in six months, you know, uh, I would probably say maybe just take a step back and have a bit of a longer-term plan. Yeah, definitely, and and to me, one thing that I'm fairly uh, a fairly strong believer in is that don't don't look at the weekly hours so much as the as the yearly hours. That's where you start to see like, okay, what did I do last year? What did I do two years ago? Obviously, you shouldn't chase hours per se, but but if you if you are currently not at a level where you can qualify for Kona, but that's where you want to go, then that long term approach is what you should take. And looking at the yearly hours is going to be more important probably than than figuring out what is the exact number of hours i need to train per week yeah and you know when you consider it from that perspective um you know hitting those yearly hours you know intensity control really comes into the into the fore there so uh, uh, the reality is a lot of those hours are going to be kind of what we might term base or aerobic or, or sub aerobic threshold yeah absolutely all right, I think we answered this question uh, in full. Anything else that you want to to mention around this? Um, no, not at this stage. I, I mean, you know, just on that last question, I wouldn't get too caught up in in chasing specific times. Um, you know, uh, 
outcome goals in that sense can, you know, be kind of detrimental sometimes, I think. You know, if you go to the race and, and for whatever reason the conditions on the day are completely different to what you might have expected, um, you know, you have to be prepared to kind of throw those out the window. And, um, you know, chasing times, whilst it's certainly, uh, you know, we've got these kind of barriers, whether it be like a three-hour marathon or, you know, sub-10 Ironman, and that, that is, they are great goals, but don't get too caught up in them. Yeah, no, that's, that's good advice. All right. Thanks, Lucky, for joining me. And uh, yeah, talk to you again soon. Sounds good, mate. Thank you. And that's it for today's Q&A. I hope that you enjoyed that discussion with uh, Coach uh, Lucky. You can find him on scientifictriathlon.com on the coaching page. And you can also find, find him on Instagram at ljkirintriathlete. While you're on scientifictriathlon.com, that's also where you can find information about our coaching services and training plans and so on. So go check it out if you want to improve your training and racing. Thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Go and take their free online sweat test to get a hydration strategy for your next race. And use the promo code show 15 to get 15% off your order of electrolyte products. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, and high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.